our Bibles tonight. Turn over to 2 Timothy 2.5. Make it 2.5. Yeah, 2 Timothy 2.5. We're going to um, continue our study in Keys to the Bible. And tonight we're going to talk about the rules of Bible study. Okay, we're going to begin that at least. We're going to start that. And so tonight we're going to turn to the book of 2 Timothy 2.5. Again, the rules of Bible study. It's so imperative and so important that we are um, capable of breaking the Word of God down and uh, being able to use it, you know, effectively. And so, you know, these rules will help us. And again, we've got a whole series. We'll be dealing with certain things along the way. But tonight, we want to begin the rules, all right? 2 Timothy 2.5 says, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Again, notice he says, And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Make sure this thing works. I'm trying to figure out how. This one or this one, brother? Which one? Oh, I got to turn it on. There you go. They tell me you have to be smarter than the equipment you operate. There we go. So in 2 Timothy 2.5, we see that uh, you got to strive lawfully. You know, in, in everything you encounter in life, every single thing, there are certain rules to follow, aren't there? In business, sports, uh, maybe even legal requirements as citizens, all of those different things. There's always different rules that we have to follow. And when you violate the rules, you pay the consequences. That's just the law of reaping and sowing. You break the rules at work, you get reprimanded, maybe even fired. You break the rules as an athlete, you're penalized, possibly disqualified. 
If you break the rules, uh, maybe as a lawbreaker, you go over the speed limit, you're fined, even jailed possibly. It's the same with the Bible. The old expression, all's fair in love and war, may work in a lot of other arenas, but it does not work when it comes to God and His Word. It just doesn't work that way. It's not all fair. And the fact is today is that you have to follow some rules. If you fail to follow certain rules in your Bible study, you're going to get all messed up. And again, the Bible has some specific guidelines as to that we need to follow in this area of studying the Bible. And if they're violated, once again, the reader, the person that's in, trying to glean from the Word of God is going to be confused, going to be deceived, even be in danger of being messed up with bad doctrine. And so we need to be very careful that we follow the rules. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, turn there if you would please. You'll notice the passage says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. I want you to notice the first thing that it's good for. It's... it is profitable for doctrine. That's the first thing. And that is the most important in that list. It is imperative that we understand doctrine. Every verse in the Bible has a specific teaching. And that specific teaching teaches only one thing. It's important to understand that. There are a number of applications that can be made on behalf of every single scripture in the Bible. However, there's only one specific doctrinal teaching. Now, the doctrinal teaching of the Bible is basically the spark plug that kind of gets everything moving in the Bible. It makes the Bible come alive. Without it, anyone can teach anything they want to teach. And they can utilize the Scriptures to do it. They can force the Bible to say whatever they want it to say. They can pull the Scripture out of the Old Testament, the New Testament... And they can say, see, this is what it means. This is how it's applied. But that is not the case at all. The Bible has a specific context. We have to understand that the Bible has a a context for everything, a doctrinal context. And so it's important to realize that. And in this particular lesson, we're going to begin talking about some rules of Bible study that will help us, or should I say, aid us in being very careful not to end up on the side of the road or in a ditch somewhere spiritually. And uh, if you're wise, you'll do your part to try to make some of these, many of them, to be very, be very aware of them on a regular basis. Not just read through them, but maybe memorize them and hide them in your heart so that as you begin to read through your Bible, as you study the Word, as you hear it preached and taught, these rules come to mind and they'll help you to rightly divide it. They'll help you to understand the Word of God and not end up adhering to false doctrine. And so we're going to take a look at some of these rules and maybe along the way we'll give an example or two or some things that can happen as a result or how they work, okay? We're not going to exhaust them because that's what the whole study's about, okay? But we will touch on a few of them. So tonight I want to start with rule number one. We're going to work through rule number six probably if we get that far. There are 15 that we will talk about over the next two weeks, this week and next week. But I want to try to get through the first six if I can tonight. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. Lord, again, we thank you for this time together. Lord, rules of Bible study, how important they are. We need them. Without them, Father, we can run amok and, Father, ultimately get tripped up and end up, Father, somewhere we don't belong. Now, Father, we're going to need your strength, your power, your wisdom. Holy Spirit of God, fill me. May I, Father, be your mouthpiece tonight. May you just anoint every listening ear as well. God of heaven, we need you tonight. And we just ask, Father, for your leadership and your love. And Lord, may we honor you, for you're worthy of it. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, number one, rule number one. First of all, pay the pastor a large salary. No, I'm joking. That's not really it. But anyway, rule number one. I just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, you know, if you rules. But anyway, before you ask what a verse means, determine the context. Before you ask what a verse means, determine the context. This is important, all right? 
It's very important. The very first question that you must ask yourself is, what is the context of this particular passage? Every cult on the face of the earth, which uses the Bible, takes verses out of context and ultimately tries to prove their point. Every one of them does that. For example, if someone's going to teach that a Christian can lose their salvation, they may take a verse from the book of Matthew, chapter 24, chapter 25. They may go to Hebrews 3, Hebrews 6. But let's just take for just a moment this passage of, say, Matthew chapter 24. Again, they'll take it out of context to prove their point. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 24, 13. I'm going to do just a, we're going to do a little study right now. I just want you to see how this works. Before you ask what a verse means, determine the context. Matthew chapter 24. A Christian can lose their salvation. Well, you turn to the book of Matthew chapter 24. I'll show you a verse that does appear to teach that a Christian could lose their salvation. And that's exactly what a cult will do, or that's exactly what a church that has been deceived into applying false doctrine will do as well. Notice what it says here in Matthew 24, verse 13. It says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. He that shall endure to the end, endure unto the end, shall, the same shall be saved. Now listen, what that implies then is if you don't endure to the end, you won't be saved, right? If you don't endure to the end, if you fail to follow the Lord, if you fail to stay faithful, if you don't continue in being a good church member, a good tither, a good soul winner, a good faithful minister of the gospel, then obviously you're not enduring to the end. You're not going to make it. It surely appears that way. But that verse, taken out of context, may appear to cause you to lose your salvation, but is that really what it teaches? Someone says, no. Well, prove it then. It's easy to say no. You say, why, why, why are you being like that? Because here's the thing. Everybody says, well, no. I've heard it told. I, I know my pastor told me that's not. There's no way. And, 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 and I grew up believing that salvation is by grace through faith. So obviously, I don't understand why it doesn't mean that. But it certainly can't mean that. Because if it did, then I'd ruin my whole theology. Well, you've got to understand why then. Rules of Bible study will help you to understand. This aspect of context will help you immediately. And so, we have to look at it. What is the context of the passage? The context is clearly expressed in verse 3. Look at verse 3 for a moment. Matthew 24, verse 3 says, And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of His coming and of the end of the world? You see that? Now, the chapter, right early on in the chapter, and many times chapters within the first two or three verses will kind of lend itself to the context or what's actually being addressed here. And so what we find here is that they're asking a question, and they're saying, listen, what shall be the sign of Thy coming? Wait a second, Jesus already came the first time, did He not? He's in their presence now. So what coming are they referring to then? The second coming. The second coming. So what shall be the sign of that coming and of the end of the world? I want you to look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14 now. The context then of the passage is His second coming and the end of the world. You see that? Notice what it says here now in verse 24, 14, chapter 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. What gospel? The gospel of grace? No, it didn't say that. It said the gospel of the kingdom. Wait a second. Something's wrong here. This chapter here is... Talking about Christians, right? Whether we have our salvation, whether we lose... No, no, not at all. This is taking place at the end. This is talking about Christ's second coming. Before He returns, before the end of the world, we know, according to the passage, that you're going to have to endure to the end in order to be saved. We understand that the gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached 
Well, that's the same exact gospel that was being preached his first coming. And now it's going to be preached again in his second coming. You say, wait a second, you mean there's more than one gospel? Yes. Absolutely. Gospel's good news. Amen. Someone says, you're a heretic. Well, you don't know the Bible then. I'm, so, I'm not trying to be mean. Don't call me a name. Just you check it out. And I want you to try to figure it out. I want you to prove me wrong. I'm not afraid of that. This is good. You need to understand. You've got to understand your Bible. Because you know what happens again? Somebody comes along in some uh, denomination and says, Oh, see, you can lose your salvation. You have to endure to the end. I've heard people say that, especially charismatic folk. You have to endure to the end. What do you mean endure to the end? What, to be saved? You mean salvation's not by grace through faith? Salvation's by our own works? Well, the problem is they're taking passages out of context. Again, note that, this, that, that the end is coming here. Not only that, but that the gospel, uh, what gospel is being preached? The gospel of the kingdom. Now, as we'll note later in our study, Christ is coming to establish his kingdom here. His kingdom on earth. And at that point again, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached and proclaimed. The passage doctrinally then lands a smack dab in the middle of the tribulation period. You see that? Because we're, we're waiting on His second coming. What takes place prior to the second coming? Rumors of wars and all those things, right? That's what chapter 24 is talking about. Well, that puts us right in the tribulation period. So, well, so it changes everything. Because He's not talking to the church now. This isn't directed at us. We can glean from it. We can grow from it. We can learn from it. But it's not written directly to us. The kingdom gospels being preached, which says Christ is coming. Be ready. Don't give up. Don't give in to the Antichrist or his mark. Look at Revelation chapter 14 now. Revelation chapter 14. Now, by the way, just, just for clarity's sake, if I was really that much of a heretic, I think you would have noted that already. I mean, really, I don't think just tonight you'd be going, oh, man, finally, after 20 years, we figured it out. He's a heretic. You get where I'm going with that? I've believed this since I've pastored. I've known these things. I've shared these things at times, just not in this kind of setting. And truthfully, the reason why I can stand so firmly on grace through faith, the reason why I can say without a doubt you're saved and always saved, is because I understand these principles, these rules. Because there's a lot more that are much more difficult to figure out than this. But they all go away when we put things in their proper context and rightly divide the Scriptures. Now, <clears throat> look what it says in Revelation chapter 14, verse 9. It says, and the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in their forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out with, without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Well, that mark is the 666, right? You receive that, what's the Bible tell you? Where do you go? To the lake of fire. You go to the lake of fire. But wait a second. What if somebody says, oh, Lord, I need you. Oh, God, help me. And then next week, runs out and takes the mark of the beast. Where does he go? Where does he go? Please help me out here, folks. According to the Bible, where does he go? Not according to Pastor O'Donnell. Hey, wait a second. What happens if he goes out and witnesses to people the kingdom gospel? Hey, Jesus is coming back. He's going to return. He's Messiah. He's coming to establish his visible, physical kingdom. Then next week he goes over there and his family's having a hard time and his child's starving over there. He can't buy food or anything without the mark. And he finally says, I can't take it no more. I can't take it no more. Give me the mark. Where does he spend eternity? Doesn't matter. 
That's all. I'm just saying the Bible's what says this. This is the Bible teaching us here. When we understand the context of this passage, and we're talking about, remember, we're in the tribulation period in Matthew 24. So if somebody takes the mark, no matter how godly they were or are, once they take the mark, it's over. They have to endure to the end. And that's what we learn. See, this is a very powerful truth that we understand and that we learn now because we have gotten the context and we understand the division of it all. When we understand the context, you know, when, when it was written, whom it was written to, for what purpose it was written, we learn a very powerful truth. Those that are saved in the tribulation period can lose their salvation if they take the mark of the beast and do not endure to the end. That's what you learn. Simple. Hey, don't, don't get messed up on that word saved. We're going to find out here in a little bit. They're not part of the church anyway, so that's not a big deal. We're going to find that out in a minute too. And said, whoa, I told you this is going to be a great and interesting study. It's awesome. This is just one example of the trouble that a person can run into if they fail to determine context. I want you to notice what Peter says. He specifically warns us about being very careful with the Word of God. Look at 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Maybe those 15 rules will take us about 12 weeks at this rate. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. We'll read two verses there. He says, An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Notice, Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto us. Or you, he says at this point as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood. There are some things that are hard to be understood. Which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. The word rest there, let me just make it as simple as I can, as basic as I can. They twist them. They turn them. They take them out of context. So they, uh, they, these unlearned and unstable twist these scriptures or these sayings or these truths as they do also the other scriptures. It's funny, usually when you get in a habit of twisting scriptures or turning them or causing them to say things or taking them out of context, you have a tendency to do that often. It's usually other scriptures too. It's not just one place usually. Usually you end up doing it somewhere else because there's a, a foundational flaw here. We've missed the, how it works. See, you can open your Bible up and you can prove any truth you want almost from this book. You could do that if you wanted. But if you, t- you have to take it out of context though. I mean, what, what do you think is going on today with, with the Sodomite movement? Telling us today that God loves everyone, that there's no reason why they can't be married, and that God still says they can be saved and do all this stuff and live like this and consciously ignore His Word. How do they come up with those things? How do, and then they use the Word of God to prove it. I've seen some of it. They pull it out of context. They pull it out of context. Well, that's how you do it. That's how it always works. That's what religions do. That's what... Uh, governments have done through the years and they've tried to hurt and harm people ultimately in the end. They've used religion to hurt. Look at the whole dark ages. Tell me they didn't twist some scriptures around. Cost people their lives. People that honestly love the word. When you encounter a passage you don't understand, you need to back up a few verses and read the entire chapter, possibly even read the entire chapter, and in order to determine context. Who's he talking to? What's he talking about? Where's this fall in things? I mean, where's this at? Where, where's, it, where, where's it take us here? Um, almost every chapter in the Bible has a specific context doctrinally. And it's usually detailed early on. Just like in Matthew 24, we saw it very early on. We understood where it lands us. Puts us right in the tribulation, preparing for the return of Jesus Christ, His second coming. And so this is an important truth. So there's, there's the first rule. Before you ask what a verse means, determine the context. See how important the context is? 
we could have been in a real mess if somebody came to our door and said, I'm a Christian too, just like you. And you said, yep. And he said, so are you perfect? You know, you've been living your life? Well, I've been out of church a little. I've been, I haven't been as faithful to church as I should be. Well, you know what? Unless you endure to the end, you're not going to be saved. Let me show you this passage. Let me take you over to Hebrews 6. Let me give you something over there. You'd be like, oh man, I'm lost. I'm, I'm in trouble. No, you're in trouble not because you lost your salvation. You're in trouble because you lost your first love. Number two. <clears throat> Let's talk about rule number two. The Bible... Oh, let me do that. huh? The Bible is written... To three groups of people. Jews, Gentiles, and the church. That is who the Bible's written to. Three groups of people. You say, who else does, it, does he write to? Nobody. He writes to either Jews, Gentiles, or the church. Sometimes he can write to more than one if he chooses. That'd be up to him. But almost every time... Almost every time you're going to find when you figure out context, he's writing to one of the three. He's addressing one of the three. I'm not saying it might not be profitable for all. I'm just saying he's writing directly to one of the three. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 32. The Bible says, give none offense, neither to the Jews, nor to the Gentiles, nor to the church of God. You are either a Jew, a Gentile, or in the church of God. You say, well, if I'm a Jew, then I'm a Jew and in the church of God. Nope. No. You're one of those groups now. Do you know that when you got saved, you became a new creature in Christ? You don't go back to your nationality. That's not who you are. You're a child of God now. You're in the church. And what you need now doctrinally is what's written to the church, not to the Jew, not to the Gentile. You need what's written to the church. You follow what's written to the Jew, you're going to be off course. As a matter of fact, you'd have never got saved, in a sense, if you follow Old Testament law. You needed the New Testament. You got saved. You were a Jew. Now you're in the church. Now the doctrine you have to have is church doctrine. Not Jewish doctrine, not Gentile doctrine. It's not, it, you, you're a child of God now. So there are three distinctly different groups of people addressed in the Bible. And for that reason, we do not solely base our church doctrine out of verses in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We don't do that. The church does not base its doctrine out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John primarily. That's not where you find the foundational verses of our truths. These books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not written to the church doctrinally. You want to know why? (laughs) Because the church isn't even in effect until after those events have taken place. There are, not any, there are no Christians in the Gospels. Do you know that? There are no Christians in the Gospel. I didn't say there were no saved people. There's no Christians. You're a Christian. It's interesting to note, turn if you would to Acts chapter 11 verse 26. If there were Christians during that time period, you would think that somebody would have called them that. But no one called them that. Until we come to Acts chapter 11, verse 26. The Bible says, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called, what were they called? Christians. Let's say they were called what? Look at that. First in Antioch. Wait a second. That's not even Jerusalem. I thought the first church in the book of Acts, you know, they were Christians. 
Well, yeah, they were, but notice that they weren't even called Christian till this chapter 11 of the book of Acts in Antioch. There's a transition taking place that we'll note here in our studies in the future, seeing how things are turning from the Jew to the Gentile in ministry and all of that. You know, Peter's keys to the kingdom and all that good stuff. This is not Peter, you know, being the first pope. That's not what that was all about. But he had a key to unlock Gentile salvation. And ultimately, God utilized that key. And when the key was used, it was gotten rid of. The door was open, and it's still open today. Again, you can find saved people, you just can't find Christians in the Gospels. Now, I want to show you why. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 says, For where a testament is, there must also be of necessity, also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. <clears throat> now, again, where the testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. I want you to understand that Jesus Christ was the testator. He's the one that's going to have to die. Why? Because blood has to be shed to enforce or put into practice a new testament. Even as the Old Testament under law sprinkled blood all over the, 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 the mercy seat and they, they dedicated it and the law took, you know, came into practice, so this new, this new covenant will not actually be enforced until the death of the testator and the blood is shed. Now, look if you will. We have the Old Testament law. You have the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's where Hebrews is. Hebrews 9, 16 and 17. We just read it. There's the death of the testator. Here's Acts eleven twenty six. First called Christians. Now, the Gospels, they take place before the cross. There's no death yet. Now, I know at the very end, He is risen for, you know, come see the place where the Lord lay. For he is risen as he said. I understand that. But that's last chapters. I mean, we're talking right at the very end. So that virtually all of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are in the what? Old Testament then. Because the New Testament isn't even enforced yet. Because there's been no death of the testator. So the Bible tells us in Hebrews 9, 16, and 17 that the testament is not in effect until the death of the testator. This doesn't take place until the very end of the Gospels. Until this time, doctrinally, the Old Testament is still in effect, even though the books are actually contained in the New Testament. That sounds confusing, but the fact is today is that we don't take church doctrine out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Primarily, we don't. Now, we'll still we use scriptures. Don't misunderstand me. But we don't base our doctrine, church doctrine, out of those because the church was not in existence yet, existence yet, in its empowered force or, or in its empowered um, the way it was to be empowered ultimately in Acts chapter one verse eight. So we see the church right here with Jesus Christ three years before his death, starting to get up and running. He's there, so the church is there because he's there. But it's empowered at Pentecost right after this, right after the cross. And the church as we understand it and know it, the filling of the Holy Ghost, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that takes place after the Gospels. The church as we understand it. Now, that, that may be, seem a little confusing, but it's not that big a deal. It's just important because as we get into future lessons and we understand how do we understand the Bible? Well, you have to rightly divide it then. Amen. I see something. <clears throat> so let's go to number three. The Bible has proper divisions, and you must put those divisions in the right place. Now, again, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this because we will note this at length in, in uh, the coming weeks, in the next couple weeks probably. The Bible has proper divisions, and you must put those divisions in the right place. In 2 Timothy, Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's giving him some instruction, uh, you know, to prepare him for the ministry. We know Timothy was his son in the faith, and ultimately 
took a ministry and pastored a church and all of that. And so he's preparing him. And he speaks to him in 2 Timothy 2.15. And he says, Study to shew thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So there's obviously divisions in the Bible. There's divisions. God's, God gave that to Paul. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there are divisions. You have to understand the divisions. We noted a little bit of it just a little bit ago when we said, wait a second, this passage falls in the tribulation period versus during the church age. Therefore, we got an issue. Who's he really talking to and when? There was a division. That division enabled us to rightly divide the scriptures so that they didn't become confusing or teach a contradiction. Every heretic in the world gets his doctrine from wrongly dividing the word of truth. That's just the way it is. Every false teaching in existence, every single one of them in existence, is a Bible truth that's been misplaced and misapplied. We'll look at this a little bit further, as I said, along the way. Let's go ahead and look at number four. All Scripture has three applications, and we've touched on this a little bit. A doctrinal, historical, and inspirational. All Scripture has three applications, doctrinal, historical, and inspirational. Again, I touched on it in the introduction. We looked at it slightly in our first point. But the Bible has a number of applications. Whoops. I may have to... Turn that off. But those applications fit into three areas. Doctrinal, historical, and inspirational. Now, the doctrinal applications we've noted in the past is a very specific teaching, but it's often referred to as the prophetical, the prophetical application. Something future. Something that yet has to be fulfilled. We see it, but yet it's referring to something into the future. The doctrine is what's taking place later on. Um, it's believed that two-thirds of Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah are yet to be fulfilled. That's a lot yet. There's a lot to be fulfilled yet. As I say, as we go along in this study, you're going to be amazed what the real, the real um, theme of the Bible is. Because, you know, we have a tendency to think the, the theme of the Bible re- revolves around us. But it doesn't. It revolves around Him. And so we'll notice that a little bit as we move along. But, you know, two-thirds of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah are yet to be fulfilled. And these prophecies are a very specific teaching concerning future events often. Now, the historical application is exactly what it says it is. The fact is that every verse of Scripture actually takes place in history. It actually does. It is 100% historically accurate, the book that we have in our hand. 100% historically accurate. It is not a matter of, well, that's a story and that's an allegory and then this is really happening. No. Everything that you read about, I don't care if it's Noah in the ark, doesn't matter if it's, you know, Jonah getting swallowed by a whale. It is 100% historically accurate. Doesn't matter if science agrees, if science has caught up to the Bible or not. It is true. Creation is true. Whether science knows it or not. It's just historically accurate. Then there's the inspirational side. The inspirationally. Inspirationally, the Bible has a multitude of possible applications. I mean, I mean honestly, you have personal application. Uh, you, you've got things that you can literally look at and say, man, that applies to my life. It applies to my marriage. It applies to my church. It applies to my country. And there's applications everywhere in the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 9. Turn there if you would. Chapter 9, verse 11. In chapter 9, there's a a very classic example of how personal application can be made very specific to you or I. And in this particular case, it's dealing with the grace of God. And it's, it's talking about a time when Mephibosheth comes to live with the king in his palace. Remember, David goes and says, are there any relatives still left? Is there anybody I can show mercy to of Jonathan's seed? Oh, yeah, there's Mephibosheth. Yeah, you can show him. That's, that's the name. Say that ten times fast. But uh, Mephibosheth, yeah, he's still alive. And so he said, okay, let's go grab him. Bring him on to my house. 
Notice what he says here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 11. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. You see that? Do you know that inspirationally, we can make an application to ourselves? I can put my name right in there. As for Mark O'Donnell, said the king, Jesus, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. Now that's good, isn't it? There's an application for you. An inspirational application, very personal application. And somebody says, that's not right. You can't do that. We didn't do anything wrong. We didn't, we didn't hurt or harm the Bible. We took a passage and we applied it inspirationally, personally to ourselves. Put our name right in the passage. And you know what? There's a truth right there. As a matter of fact, there's a doctrinal truth there that we don't have time to get into. But look at it. As from Mephibosheth said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. One day you and I are all going to eat around the king's table. That's another area, this area of doctrinal, historical inspiration. We'll look at and give it more attention along the way. Number five, God chooses the exact words. Oh, let me show you on here because this is easier to write from, isn't it? There we go. God chooses the exact words he wants to use and the events recorded to show you something. Now, again, we discussed this last week at length, so we're not going to spend much time, if any, on it hardly. But John chapter 21, verse 24 and 25, we noted that passage. And let me just read verse 25 as you're writing maybe this particular rule. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, the which, if they should be written, every one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. And we, we, we said last week, and as, as, as we're taught here in rule number five, that of all the things God said, of all the things Christ did on earth, all the miracles He performed, if He would have literally, if they'd have wrote down each and every one of them, there wouldn't be enough room to contain the books that it took. In the entire world, there was just so much that Jesus Christ accomplished and did on earth that you just couldn't even, you couldn't write about it. It just wouldn't fit in the library of this earth. So that means that everything we have that we hold in our hand today, every single word is exactly what He wanted for us. I mean exactly what He wanted. Every word. Of all the words He could have shared, He shared these. How valuable should they be to us? Rule number six. God has three distinct plans revealed in His Word. He has a plan for the universe, for the earth, and for your life. You life. The plan for you life. At least that's what I wrote. I, I, I looked at that twice because I thought I left the R off there. But anyway, and a plan for your life. God has three distinct plans revealed in His Word. He has a plan for the universe, for the earth, and for your life. In Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to take your Bible, look over there. Look at Hebrews chapter 1. I'll tell you what, everybody on this side, look at Hebrews 1 verse 2. Everybody on this side, look at Hebrews 11 verse 3. 11 verse 3 on the, my right, your left. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. My left, your right. I want you to look at these verses. Now, I, I want somebody on this side to read verse uh, 2 for me. Hebrews 1 verse 2 for me. Very loud with the King James Bible. Yeah, go ahead and stand up, please. Sean's going to read that for us. What, say that last phrase again. By whom what? The worlds. Okay. Okay, thank you. Let's have somebody stand and read over here on this side. Anybody? Do we got a reader? Go, go right ahead. Yeah. Okay, before you sit down, it says, though, through faith we understand what? The worlds were framed. Thank you, Sue. The worlds. Notice that word, worlds. What's that imply? It's a plural word, right? So there's more than one world. More than one world. 
I didn't say there's more than one earth. But there's more than one world. Oh, there must be aliens, preacher. That's not what I'm implying. I'm not even going there. I'm not going there. I think some of you are aliens, really. <laughs> some of you probably think I'm an alien. But the fact... I, didn't, I heard that, amen. But I, I just... I want you to understand, though, that there's worlds involved. Now, think about this for a second. If there's more than one world, then all those worlds fit into God's plan, obviously. We would call that the universe, wouldn't we? Listen, God doesn't make something so vast, so, so large, for, for no reason. I mean, God is a... We, we, we often today, the big, the big uh, uh, you know, buzzword is intelligent designer. Intelligent design. And, and that's all right. I don't have a problem with that. We have an intelligent God, and, and He designed all things, an intelligent designer. You look at creation, and we say, man, listen, I mean, it had to take somebody with some brains to do that. That didn't just happen. And you want to know something? God created the whole universe. He didn't do that just so that we could sit on our little celestial globe here, uh, just Earth, and, and just for our pleasure. There it is. God had no reason for it other than just to make us happy. No, there's a purpose for all of the things that He created. Look at how they help us in understanding the times of the seasons and all the things that go on. There's so much involved in our universe. And yet there's a reason for everything that God creates. God has a plan for the universe. And within that universe, our world fits. Our world is in that universe. So God has a plan for the world. And you live on the earth. Therefore, God has a plan for you. You and I will be confined to this earth till the day we die. And you say, I'll be a space traveler. Maybe, but you don't belong in space, by the way. If you read the Bible, you'll find that Leviathan floats around up there in outer space, none other than Satan himself. You don't want nothing to do with it, all right? I don't want to go to space. I want nothing to do with outer space. God told us to replenish the earth, not to replenish outer space. He's got a plan, and in His time, He'll replenish the universe. And there'll be people like you and I all around the universe at some point. But not now. That's not what it's about now. Because you've got an evil force out there that needs to be dealt with and destroyed. And He will be one day. So as a believer, as a Christian... You can never really find out what God wants you to do with your life without at least having a very basic concept of God's plan for the universe and the earth because it's all part of the whole. Throughout the course of our series, we're going to be looking, and again, we still have some rules to cover, but God, as we end this today, has a plan. One of the things He wants for us is to understand that plan. He wants us to understand his word, because we can't understand the plan without the word of God. I, I, I don't think that any of us probably really understand how valuable this book is, how needed it really is in our life. And, and yet it's probably one of the most neglected books that we have in our, our library. More than likely we read the newspaper or the internet clippings more than we read the word of God. You know, more than likely we spend more time watching television than we do in the word of God. You know, more than likely we spend more time listening to radio, talk radio or something like that, more than we even spend time listening to God's Word. I'm just saying, let's really, as believers, make it a point to say, you know what, I want to get a grasp on this thing. I don't want to just hold it in my hand. I want to really understand it in my head and my heart. And begin to take steps as we understand the rules. So, today, we covered a couple here and we're... We're going to close this down, but notice we are learned before you ask what a verse means, determine the context. We learned that the Bible's written to three groups of people Jew, Gentile, and the church. We learned rule number three the Bible has a proper divisions, and you must put those divisions in the right place. Number four, all scripture has three applications doctrinal, historical, and inspirational. Number five, God chooses the exact words He wants to use and the events recorded to show you something. Number six, God has three distinct plans revealed in His Word. He has a plan for the universe, for the earth, and for your life. What's God doing in your life tonight?
What's he doing in your life? What's he doing? Anything good? Anything special? Or is your Christian life boring? I'll tell you what. Let's let God speak to our hearts about some things. Let's get in His Word, okay? Let's spend some time saying, God, I want to learn. I want to understand this book. I want to be able to apply it to my life, to my relationships, to my marriage, to my home, to my culture, society. I want, to, I want it to make a difference in my life so that I can ultimately make a difference in the lives of others. God help us to realize God has a plan for us and a purpose. Maybe you're lost tonight. Maybe you don't even know for sure if you died, you'd go to heaven. And that intelligent designer God that created you, you really don't have a walk or a relationship with him. Let me encourage you tonight to settle that. You know, in the word of God, he gives some promises, shares some promises with us so that you can know without a doubt you're on your way to heaven. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. You can know. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all you've done for us. And Lord, we are just a needy people tonight. Thank you for the simplicity of your word. And yet, Lord, at times it can seem difficult. But, Lord, as we rightly divide it, as we begin to understand the context of passages, Lord, things begin to clear up. Lord, a number of these young guys that are here, Father, they need to begin now to understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. Lord, if they don't get it now, they may be years trying to figure it out. Lord, just help us, Lord, to really be serious about our Bibles, to truly want to understand them and be able to apply them practically in our life and in the lives of others. Lord, we want to thank you again for this evening. And Lord, if there be anyone here, somebody that's lost without Christ, may they come see me and allow me to have somebody take a Bible and show them how to be saved tonight. We'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet with every head bowed, every eye closed.